welcome to episode 36 of Western Reaches. We're a Tashi Station podcast about books and video games. Um, my name is Megan Krauss. I'm here with my co-host, Saf. Hello. And today, we also have our new mascot, the Skink, who is not actually <laughs> here. But if you go on Twitter, you can see the Skink for yourself. <laughs> it's a very cute Skink, and it's, yeah, our mascot now. Yeah, Saf. Found it in her house, right? <laughs> yeah, the cat was trying to eat it, and I was like, no. And then I realized I didn't know how to catch a skink, so I just did the thing you do with spiders and put it in a glass, and that seemed to work. <laughs> just drop a mason jar over it, it was fine. <laughs> so our first, uh, our main topic today is the Bone Universe series by Fran Wilde, which is a series of fantasy books that you might have heard us talk about before. The last book in the series came out this summer and Saf finish, finished it recently. That's correct, right? I didn't fact check this intro. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, I did finish it. So you're okay. good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Hashtag process. Um, <laughs> so we wanted to talk about the place of this series in uh, YA and why we liked it so much and why you should read it. We're going to do like a spoiler section, but mostly we will be uh, talking in a non-spoilery fashion about the entire trilogy later on. So first, we're going to do our books, um, our, like, normal topics. I <laughs> chose a book from the library recently that I had been wanting to read for a while, but basically because I thought the cover looked good. Um, the Court of the <laughs> Air by Stephen Hunt had this very steampunk, like, old-fashioned looking cover to it, and it was this, like, huge fantasy book. So I kept looking at it and going maybe I'll pick this one, and never picking it, and I finally had a long flight to go on, so I thought, here's a long book that will keep me interested over this flight. So, that, <laughs> yes, so that is the one I chose, and luckily, it was good. I was glad that I chose it. It is um, a steampunk setting. The, apparently, this series is four or five books in the series, and they all sort of pastiche a certain genre, so this one was a sort of Dickensian, like, orphans on the run series, and it was a lot about the politics of um, royal being, whether you're royalist or democratic, and a little bit about sort of communism in there, a lot of uh, political commentary in this fantasy universe. And it's uh, the rest of the series is all different, like pastiches of different things. So, like, the next one is basically about an Indiana Jones style character going to the lost city of Atlantis, all set in this steampunk universe with sentient robots and this whole robot culture there's a talking gun there's like guns that possess people and turn them into vigilante spirit ghosts there are fairies that may or may not be affiliated with entropy there are aztec style Ooh. death gods there's a lot going on in this book and sounds- i really liked that like how rich it was. The story itself is basically just a coat hanger to hang all these ideas on. It felt a lot like a world that you could set a role-playing game in, because you could be any one of these different species, and there was every once in a while the author would just mention like, oh yeah, there are flying lizard people who live in the clouds. Moving on now. So so it was very creative. I definitely want to read the rest of the series. I really like the idea of entropy fairies. There was one description that I thought was so good of what exactly the villains wanted to do, and it was sort of like one of the explanations for magic was that the fae 
creatures kind of like stabbed a road through the world and where the people were on the side of that road, those are the people that got fey powers. And that road is like a passageway through which the fey could potentially escape when the like entropic death gods arrive. And it was just like really neat trappings. And I, I couldn't decide whether this author, I, I know nothing about this author, but I couldn't decide whether he had meticulously planned all of this out or just completely pantsed it and just went, I'm going to write whatever I feel like. <laughs> because it had that, like, constant inventiveness, which was either incredibly planned, because it was very consistent, or had all been thrown at the wall, and then he kept everything and then made it consistent later. I'm not sure which. Either way, it was impressive. That's, I really love some impressively consistent world building and stuff like that. The world was definitely stronger than the characters. The characters were, like, okay, but the one, the the female lead was, like, sort of had a magic connection to machinery, so she could tinker with things, and I really liked her as well. Right, that's really cool. Yep. And then the completely different book that I read was a very short series of scientific articles called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics by Carlo Rovelli, who is an Italian physicist. And this was recommended to me by a friend who's really into Italian writing, and she had said that she thought I would like it because it's about physics. It was originally published as a series of newspaper columns, I believe, and it's been collected and, and translated in this book. And I haven't read about physics in a while. I used to be really into theoretical physics, like to the extent that I wasn't educated in it, I just read Stephen Hawking quite a lot. And I this brought me back to the kind of like wonder of it. And some of the descriptions were just so elegant and looked at things in a way I'd never seen before. It was, as it says, seven lessons on different types of discoveries and different types of physics. Um, everything from like general relativity to modern understandings of particle physics and some of the sort of philosophy of that, like what does this mean if you take it as a philosophy of how humans relate to their world and how math relates to the world, and it was really good. That's really cool. I always kind of bulk of it when I think about reading nonfiction stuff like that, but physics is such a cool subject. It's funny, I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but when I do, it's usually either about physics or the American space program. And this just like, my friend happened to have it. It fit in really well. I do think it would be a good, like, it's hard for me to say whether it'd be a good intro, but I, I think it would be, it was designed to be for people that don't necessarily have a lot of background in this. It gives you a lot of background about like Einstein's discoveries and what was, and sort of how people built on that. So definitely recommend it. That's I don't know good. how easy it is to cool. find, um, but I do recommend it. If I see it somewhere, I might grab it, because I am always interested in theoretical physics. Even if I was really bad at physics in school, I find it endlessly interesting <laughs> to learn about. I feel like that's, that's so much me, too. Like, I love this as a theory, but I can't do the math. Yeah, it was the, it was the math and the formulas. I just couldn't get a handle of them. <laughs> yep, so this takes it in a really elegant conversational but very like rigorous style 
Cool. That's, That's about cool. it uh, for me for books. Actually, I guess I can insert here that I, I also read Vector Prime for the Voncast, which is Tashi Station's new new Jedi Order podcast. So you can check that out too if you want to hear all of my thoughts on a Star Wars series from the uh, early two thousands, late nineties. <laughs> I can see those thoughts only being good. I mean, like not necessarily good on the books, but good to listen. It's to. It's a lot of fun. I'm doing it with uh, with. Bria and Rocky from the Star Wars Twitterverse, and we're, we just have two episodes so far, but we're going to plan to read all 19 books, so that'll be fun. Whew, dang. Yeah. Nice. For some reason, I discovered today I own two copies of the second book in the series. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it just reproduced on its own. <laughs> That's dangerous. It's, and, like, I understand why, like, contemporary Star Wars books just reproduce in my home. I understand where they come from. This one, not so much. Mm. This one is just, what is it called? When, like, spontaneous generation? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of things that are uh, multiplying rapidly, how are your Halo books going? Oh, gosh. Um, okay, so I finally finished Legacy of Onyx. Um, which was good. It was a decent book. It wasn't like the best book ever, but I do like Halo books that work to have like relationships between like platonic or otherwise. I don't know if there has been otherwise. Um, between like humans and the aliens because I love that kind of stuff. And also, a, anything that kind of gives me any more hints towards like what they might be doing in Halo Six, which this book doesn't really do, but I can still dream. Um is good. So I enjoyed it for the yeah, the relationships. Um the story was all right. The writing was pretty decent. It was a pretty solid Halo book all up. Um and then I got when I was in Australia recently, I got Halo Fractures, which is that short story collection which I've been meaning to get for ages, but I finally saw it in a bookstore there and I was like, "You know what? I'm just going to do it." So I just finished that last night, I think. Um and I really liked some of the short stories in there because it's got like stuff about the forerunners and some really, it's got Saint's Testimony, yes. which I've read before, but I still love it so much. It's so good. What um, did you think about the Cortana story? And Which was the Cortana story the again? The at the end that also mentions um, BB. Am I making stuff up now? I swear there's a story toward the end that talks about Cortana. Uh, wait, let me just grab it real quick. <laughs> I could be wrong. I don't know. <laughs> There's really one about Cortana and um Do you remember who wrote it? Uh, I was one of that was one of the game writers. Anna Rosa was the last one. What was Anna Rosa about? I was very tired when I finished this book. <sighs> No. Ah, oh, yeah, there's the one about um, the person who has to consent to a sister becoming an AI. Oh, that one was really good. But I don't know if that's that what you're talking really about. Good. Yeah, that I one was really cool. I don't think that's the one. I don't, but... think any, I don't think there's anything about Cortana in particular in this one. There is one in um, Halo Evolutions, I think. Maybe I'm getting them swapped. I'll come back to that because I remember there was a story toward the end that basically... It, the reason I wanted to bring it up was because it added, like, it hinted at Halo 6, but I also thought the writing absolutely crumbled. Like, the prose was a mess, and the 
story was really interesting, and it was something about one of the AI deciding whether or not to join Cortana, I think. Oh! Yeah. Oh, is that the one with Saren? Probably. Yeah. With Osman? Yeah. Yeah. And where she gets to, yeah, because that's the one where she is like, she escapes Cortana because of yes. BB, and then he gives her all of the executive military AI, and she basically gets to choose whether or not to destroy them all, or to give them the choice whether or not to join Cortana. And then it kind of ends really ambiguously yeah, on that. Yeah, I think that's the one, because um, I was like, this has, like, I love these characters, but it read kind yeah. of like a fairy tale, and that didn't work for me. Yeah. I didn't love it. I loved, I wanted to because I liked the idea of it, but I didn't love the story itself. Especially because it ended very ambiguously, but it didn't end ambiguously in a way that, like, she could have gone either way believably. It was ambiguously in a way that, like, it didn't give you enough to believe either direction, really. Um, which I didn't really like. I Like, I love an ambiguous ending, but I didn't love it in this case because I was like, I feel like there could have been more done to lead up to this choice. As opposed to just like suddenly having the choice. The most, um, my favorite the most optimistic interpretation oh, of that, I think, is right there in the title, like fractures. The fact that these stories are kind of like splintered off from other stories, and they are by nature incomplete. But at the same time, I think that might be a, an over optimistic interpretation. Yeah, who knows? Honestly, I'm trying to remember. I had a story I really liked in this one. Um, which might have been Promises to Keep by Christy Golden, uh, which was, I think, the one about the characters from the Forerunner trilogy. Oh, so, like, yeah. Born Stellar. And yeah, she that. did a good Forerunner story. Yeah. Was it that? Or did she do a different one? Because apparently it's got the library in it. There's one, yeah, whatever one she wrote, I, think it I was really that one, liked it. That one had um, <laughs> my new favorite Forerunner character, whose name I can't remember at the moment. Was it probably the green one? Not there's Chant Green, <laughs> and then there's the other, the scientist oh, guy. Um, I liked that one. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, these forerunners have interesting names. That's for sure. This has been my very my fractured memory of Halo fractures. <laughs> yeah, so I really like that one because Christy Golden, like she's she's a really solid writer for franchises, um, and it just I love the Forerunner stuff. And because when I read the Forerunner trilogy like a million years ago, uh, back when Halo Four was new, um, I've had like this love for those characters since then. And so after Halo Four, I was always I always wanted to know what happened to Bornsteller, who's like the new didact basically but he's but the didact you see in halo 4 this could be very confusing to non-halo <laughs> fans but the antagonist of halo 4 is the original version of this character and then there's also like a genetic mutated copy of him somewhere else who is the main character of the forerunner trilogy and i love that guy because he is a sweetheart who just makes a lot of mistakes and doesn't mean to do any of that but he gets dragged into everything and so i was always like what happened to him like where is he is he dead and then this, these books, or this this book and the stories in this book, explain what happened to him and like where he ends up. And so you get the actual ending of his story, like in that last little. There's like a little snippet right at the end of the book that's not a story. It's just like after the acknowledgments and everything, there's a final snippet, and that's his final story, his like last little bit that you kind of get this closure and resolution for this whole forerunner saga that's been happening in the background of halo this whole time and i was really i teared up a little bit when i read that because i got very emotional it took me a while to realize that it was actually forerunners and not humans i was like 
is this far future humans or something? And then it clicked that obviously it's it's not because they would be spoiling way too much with that probably. Um, but yeah, didn't really get any answers for what Halo 6 might have, but I really enjoyed this um, this chunk of short stories way more than Evolutions, which I haven't actually finished yet because I'm still mad about, about the Cortana story in that and I just don't want to go back to mm, it. Understandable. The the epilogue thing reminds me of like yeah. that feeling of recognition of when you it slowly dawns on you what character you're reading about is is such a cool experience and that's like kind of yeah. how I felt about uh, finding Sarah and Osmond in that in that collection. Yeah, yeah, I really liked that. It's it's a bunch of really good stories and also yeah, Shadow of Intent is in there which I have read previously. But I think that's the one where they have, like, the lady saying Haley and, like, the really cool grunt. Yes. And all that kind of stuff. And that's a really cool story, too. I didn't read it again this time because it's quite a long one. It's like an actual novella. Um, but I remember really liking it. So, yeah, I really I really dig all the authors that they got for this and, like, all of the stories they got for this. And I really hope they do more anthologies like this. Yeah. Uh, they've always been a mixed bag, but they I always enjoy them. Hmm. Yeah, so between Fractures and Legacy of Onyx, I have done a lot of Halo reading. And I also finished Halo 5, so it was kind of cool finishing that in tandem with finishing Legacy of Onyx, because um, those two stories link in pretty closely in a lot of ways. Uh, so yeah, I don't know what I'm... I actually, I need to read... I forgot what it's called. Halo Envoy, I think. I need to read that next, because my friend was talking about it, and I realized I haven't read that book. So I still have more Halo to read. I'm not done yet. Um, Smoke and Shadow, I believe, also recently came out in paperback. Oh, yeah. It was previously published differently, and recently it was it, they, were, uh, they sent review copies out. So I have a Smoke and Shadow waiting for me, but I read it before. But that, I wanted to give a shout out to that one. Mm. I don't know if I've actually read Smoke and Shadow. It had a female lead, and it has a female author too. Um, it's a uh, it's it ties into Halo Wars, so it's about the daughter of the captain of Spirit of Fire, and then oh. yeah, it's just, it, all this by Kelly yep, Gay. It was That's right. Cool. It was like piratey underworld kind of stuff. Cool. Okay, yeah, I haven't read that yet. I'll check that out um, when I handed in. When I returned Legacy of Onyx, I think, uh, the lady there, because I turned it in late, I ruined my amazing streak of never returning a library book late, um, but the lady I gave it to to pay the fine was like, oh, is this good? And I was like, this moment of, are you a Halo <laughs> yeah. fan asking, or are you just like someone asking if a book is good? She's like, I haven't really mean to read the Halo books, like, and she started talking about Halo, and I was like, you must be the reason that Halo books keep ending up on the the mystery shelf <laughs> that's awesome because i keep turning up you there <laughs> so i was like yes i was like yes okay there's a secret halo fan here i must yes. befriend her you should ask her <laughs> if she's read uh the mona lisa <laughs> i should that's such a good one <laughs> all right so i think we can move on to games I've yes. mostly been playing Assassin's Creed Origins. I'm properly in it now, doing the story, going along. I've got, I've arrived at the city of Memphis, which I'm actually enjoying a bit more than Alexandria. Like, Alexandria was a very pretty city. Memphis is kind of, like, half in a swamp, and someone's going around poisoning people and, like, dumping bodies where they shouldn't be. So, it's kind of, it's it's got problems, but I've been enjoying the side quests there, and my favorite side quest was there's like three well there's one so you rescue a guy from 
a bandit camp, essentially. And he asks you to help him find a lost, a ring that belonged to him that he lost. And this is when, like, as any game, Assassin's Creed Origins is, like, open world and it has your player character helps everyone. He does errands, he solves murders, he is also an assassin, like, he helps with everything. But this mission, he started to be like, I'm not sure I actually want to help this guy, because he sends you on these several, like, fetches, basically, to go get this ring. And you slowly start to realize that he, it's not really his ring, he stole it, or, like, dug it up somewhere, and Bayek is just like, why am I doing this? <laughs> Which really just, like, made me laugh as a player, like, the hero is not sure, is, like, why am I running this errand for this random people? Like, it was quite meta. And then <laughs> there's a part in the desert where I started seeing, like, mirages and i still do not know whether this is like an event happens there that i haven't actually activated yet or whether this is just a feature of that area in the game or if this is like an online like something that happens when because current like events run every every three days or something i have no idea why bayek started seeing visions in the desert and seeing mirages but when i went out to get the ring and it's just like in the desert i was seeing all this stuff and i was like what is this like am i gonna get a new quest is there gonna be something secret hidden out here like what happens if i go to these things nothing really happened and then i picked up the ring and all this whispering started and just like like a female voice just like floating on the wind whispering and I was like, is the ring cursed? Is this part of this quest? Because, or is this just how this area is? And so I returned the qu- the ring to the guys that wanted it, and they immediately start squabbling over it, and the whispering stops. And I still don't know, and I kind of don't want to know, because I like to think that this is just like, like sort of an organic mesh of two different game activities that don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. But I was just like, is it a cursed ring? Is it, like, cursed to always leave its bearer and, like, cause chaos after it? Or did I just stumble (laughs) into a completely unrelated, like, feature of this game and put these two things together? I don't know, and I don't really want to know, but it was a good experience. That's really, really cool. It it was fun. Apparently, Assassin's Creed... I. I I texted, like, friends of mine who are into Assassin's Creed. I was like, there's, like, this weird ghost horse out in the desert, and, like, Bayek is seeing things. Oh, my God. And, like, I rode the ghost horse, but I don't know what's going to happen. Nothing happened. And they were like, yeah, like, every once in a while, you just get visions <laughs> in Assassin's Creed, which is, like, not entirely true. There's usually some kind of inciting incident, I think. Or, like, maybe sometimes there are, like, glitches and things. I, I'm not sure. But, because I haven't played them, the Assassin's Creed <laughs> games in a long time, so I could be wrong. But it's just like, oh, that, that happens every once in a while. <laughs> so I still have no answers, and that's fine. That's weird, but really cool. I love that so much. It's like a weird mystery that yeah, doesn't really need to be good. explained. I Maybe uh, there's these higher level, like, challenges of the gods or something they're called, and they're like level 40 I'm, I'm nowhere near there yet but i wonder if like maybe one of those takes place there and i'm just not high enough level to actually activate it or something i don't know 
Hmm, that's possible. I guess one day maybe you'll find out, or maybe you won't. Maybe it'll just be a mystery forever. I'm okay either way, really. <laughs> it's a good way to approach it. Yes. So that's going pretty well. I, I like the side characters in general. And then I've been playing a little bit of Destiny 2. Uh, Crucible is improving, and I am improving at Crucible. So I jumped into Crim- Crimson Days for a while yesterday, which is just like uh, 2v2 Crucible. And that was a lot of fun. They've I don't really have too much to say about that. Like the nitty gritty of the, the meta is changing a little bit. But overall, Destiny right now is just like the game that I kind of hop on not to think about anything and just to chat about my friends. I'm still like, I wish there was more lore. The way they drop lore now is like very erratic and very, there's not a lot going on yeah. <laughs> lore-wise. Yeah. And I really wish there was more, but there's going to be that, like, there's a DLC next and there's this event running now, so I'm happy with that event anyway. I feel like for a while I've been waiting, I've been like constantly pushing for more from Destiny, but at the same time, I keep going back to it, so it's doing something right. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I found it just like a chill game just to go into and shoot things and do some challenges when I'm feeling kind of stressed and I want to chill out. It's like, I used to play Halo as my stress relieving game, but Halo is like either multiplayer or story, whereas in Destiny you can kind of just wander around and do whatever you want without having to play with other people or play a story. Yeah, and it, it's so good at this time disappears, time just passes differently mm. <laughs> when you're playing Destiny. So it's, yeah. been, it's been nice. It's yeah, almost meditative I, with how much you sort of focus on it. Yes, it really is. I, I've i been playing it a little bit recently too, and I just did um, the first part, I guess, of the Leviathan raid. I didn't finish it, but uh, me and another noob, I haven't been called that in a long time, it was very funny. Um, we're being <laughs> dragged to the raid. You're a kindergarten, it's fine. <laughs> yes, I'm a kindergarten. <laughs> you're doing um, pretty good though, if you're on, if you're on the raid. Yeah, no, I, this wasn't actually the clan I just got inducted into, um, this was a friend's clan, and they just dragged me through it a little bit, and then I had to leave, but the good thing was that the other guy, the other newbie, was worse than me, um, so I was like, oh no, I'm gonna embarrass myself and make everyone hate me, but he was doing that instead, so, um, there was one bit where they were doing, like, this thing where they've got to run through a course, I guess, so we have to shoot things to make sure they can run through, I don't, I don't understand, I just did what they told me to do, um, and I could hear them talking about it. And this guy was like, hey, dude, don't use Blink to jump through this stuff. And the guy was like, no, 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 I know how to use Blink. It's good. It's good. And then we tried a few times and failed a few times. And we started again. And the like other guy was like, so what did we learn today? And the, the newbie was like, went silent for a little while. And he was like, don't use Blink. And it was just the funniest thing. <laughs> it felt like... I was watching Red vs. Blue or something like that. Like, it was just an amazing moment. Um, And at some point, he also jumped down from a really high thing and died at the bottom. And I just lost it laughing at him. And when he respawned, he walked over and punched me. And I was like, yeah, I deserve that. That that is Red vs. Blue. (laughs) Yeah, it was really fun. Um, But yeah, I didn't finish it. I did get a cool new helmet, though, which I am not using because I already have an exotic equipped. Um... But yeah, it was it was really fun, and I want to actually do the full Leviathan right at some point. But it's really long, so I actually have to carve out time for it and also convince somebody else, or like a bunch of somebody else's, to carve out time for it with me. Which, hmm, maybe I'll do it with my new clan at some point. Because I apparently, yeah, I'm part of a clan that just decided to induct me, and 
It's just a bunch of like Aussie and Kiwi bros. So it's great. I love it. That's the the raid where the lore is basically that the Cabal Emperor is like, come visit me. I will welcome you into my home. You can pet my dogs. And then you fight a robot form of him. Yeah. And it's it's almost like the inverse of the King's Fall raid where with the hive it's like you ritually challenge us and the whoever wins, you know, wins our throne. Whereas the Cabal are like we're just going to fight for fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, when we first walked in, because there's like a whole bunch of guards and you're not meant to f- shoot them because um, they're like real tough guys. And so when we were loading into it, one of the guys in the raid was just like, do whatever you do, do not shoot the guards. Just don't do it. If you do it, we will leave you and you will die. And I was like, you've made it really tempting to shoot them now, but I won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so tempted because I wouldn't have done it otherwise. Like, I would have just ignored them because everyone else was doing it. But because they told me not to, I was like, oh, I really want to now, though. Like the added, we will leave you. <laughs> yeah, like- it was the whole thing of, like, knowing that I would be abandoned to my very quick death was kind of the big part of not doing it. Just Saf's guardian sitting on the balcony of the emperor's ship cackling as the guards surround her. That's what I'm picturing right now. (laughs) That would have almost exactly been it. I probably would have been dancing as well. (laughs) So yeah, Destiny is fun. I love it. It is fun. I got new um, gauntlets recently that are really cool. They have like, the lore is really cool and they have like snakes wrapped around them. Like jeweled snakes nice great yeah i got really mad because i was playing with my friend the other day and because the mic drop emoji or emote is currently in the actual store so you can buy it and i don't have enough bright dust for it so um, me and my friend who i was playing with both got like we both bought some silver and got some packs and his first pack he got the mic drop emote the first emote he's ever gotten he got that one and then i didn't get it at all and i was so mad because it's really expensive (laughs) Oh no! See, I wish I could like trade this stuff. That would be nice. Me too. Yeah, because he was like, "Hey, hey, look, look at me." And I looked at him, and he he did the emote, and I was like, "I hate you so much." Uh, it would probably break the system somehow, but it would be so much more pleasant to be able to just yeah. like, "Hey, here, I'll hand you this." Yeah, I wish. I really Maybe wish within the clan or something. Mm, that would be good. One day I'll get that emote. One day. One day. Don't spend all your bright dust in one place. Oh, wait, I guess you have to spend it all in one place. Just... Yeah, it's not really near the place to spend it. Hmm. <laughs> Tess's monopoly should be investigated. <laughs> I have many, many destiny thoughts, but I think they are for another time. They're for yeah. all times, but not this time. Yeah. Yeah. Is that all the games for you? Oh, that is all the games for me, yes. Okay, I guess it's my turn now. Um, real quick, I played part of the new like remake, HD remake of Shadow of the Colossus. I guess it's not a remaster because they actually just built it again, I think. Because um, it just came out. And it's really cool because I love Shadow of the Colossus. It's been really cool. I Turns out I remember how to kill all of the Colossus still because I played it a lot when I was younger. Um, I do agree with some people that like the high fidelity kind of brings about a loss of somewhat of the charm of the original um but on the other hand it looks really cool and it's really pretty and it's really fun because it's shadow of the colossus so 
I'm kind of cool with that trade up. My main problem with it is that it's just, it feels too easy now. <laughs> like, uh, I put it on normal mode because I was like, I remember the original game being really hard. And I don't know if that was because when you first play it, it's challenging or because I was a bad gamer when I was a kid or because the original was harder. But I've, I churned through the first eight colossi in like a couple of hours and I was like hmm it doesn't feel like it should be this easy but from what I know the higher difficulty settings are basically just making your attacks do less damage which is not the greatest of difficulty curves um so I'm kind of okay with playing on the mode I am um it's just it's really cool I love that game so much and I wish more games were like that I think my experience with Shadow of the Colossus is very, very brief, so I can't add too much. But it does sound like that's the sort of thing that would be kind of open for a challenge mode, almost. Like, you can mm. make it difficult in other ways. Yeah, like, I don't really know what I would do, but I do remember it just feeling harder. But that just be, could be because I remember how to kill all of the Colossi now. So I just can run in and shoot their weak spot and just climb on them and just kill them. So, like, <laughs> I do know how to play it very well by this point, um, which is probably part of the reason I find it so much easier. So I can't really blame the game for that that much. It does it's all my beautiful. fault for being good at it. It is absolutely gorgeous. I think they've made the horse a bit more agreeable in this version because I remember the horse being a lot more of a little shit. <laughs> I remember at one point I tried okay admittedly it was my fault but I did try to see if the horse would jump off of a cliff with me on it and the horse threw me off and so I fell off the cliff and died instead <laughs> um, which I don't think the horse was supposed to do because I've never been able to make it do it since but it did that one time <laughs> so it may have been a bug or maybe that horse just every now and then gets really vengeful at you it's funny I just imagine that conversation of like <clears throat> oh excuse me <sighs> Let me start again. <laughs> I can just imagine that conversation of like, how are we going to deal with the player being able to like, you know, they'll die if they jump off a cliff. But like, okay, so what happens if they try to knock the horse off the cliff? Like all these like different possibilities. And yeah, I have no idea whether that would be programmed in or not. But that's funny. <laughs> I still, it was good. I still remember, who was it? Maybe my brother. Somebody was playing Knights of the Old Republic. And somebody who, like, was not generally into RPGs, but I wanted them to play it because I was like, this is important to me. It was either my brother or my college roommate. And the first thought was, like, their first thought was, like, can't I jump off of things? And you basically, you can't in that game. There's no, like, you can't really jump at all. And I remember this, like, mm. standing on Taris going, I can't jump off this ledge. <laughs> like, what is this game? Yeah. I did the same thing as well. Really? <laughs> I was not used to RPGs that don't let you jump when I played that game. So I was like, why can't I jump off these things? That's funny. And I, I hadn't thought about it at all because I was on like, okay, realism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do like games that let me jump off stuff, which is something I appreciate about Mass Effect Andromeda. Nice segue into that, by the nice. way, for me. Um, which I've been playing recently because I finally have it on Xbox. So I can actually play the game without killing my computer. Um, and it has jump jets, so you can actually jump now in it, and I really appreciate that. So I spend most of my time jumping around, because it's fun, um, and I've always wanted to be able to jump in Mass Effect, so it was a good addition, I think, on their part. Uh, I actually, I'm enjoying this game a lot more than I expected. I was, like, very 
hesitant going into it because of everything I've heard. Um, but it reminds me so much of Mass Effect 1 in so many ways, and that is probably my favorite Mass Effect game. So I'm really appreciating it for like the planet exploration and just the amount of like random side quests you can do while exploring the planet. Like that was what I loved about the first Mass Effect, but it wasn't big enough. Like there wasn't enough of the planets to explore or you'd land on a planet and like there'd be literally nothing there except for like a space cow or something. Um, whereas in this game, they're like big, real in big planets, game, you get four um, real big environments. varieties of space cows. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and only some of them try and kill you. Huh? Most of them I'm, try and I'm kill you. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Like as as one of the people who was very who like created the low expectations. Um, I'm I'm glad you're enjoying it. Like, <laughs> what do you think about the characters? Do you like the squad? I like most of the squad. I don't love Cora, which I knew would be a problem. Um, because she's very like, why don't you all feel dead? Your dad's the best person ever. Blah, blah, blah. I love your dad. I love your dad so much. I'm like, please stop. <laughs> Just chill out, lady. Um, but I love pretty much everyone else in the squad. I am trying to romance PB, but I think I may have screwed it up because there's like a part where you kind of initiate the romance where she goes, no strings, right? And you can be like, yeah, no strings. Or you can say, what if I want strings? And I was like, no, if I say that, then she'll get scared and she'll dump me. And so I didn't say that, and I said, no strings, of course. And I was, like, thinking internally, no, but I want strings, I love you so much. Um, And I was talking to somebody else who has played the game, finished it, and romance PB, and they were like, ah, I chose the the strings option. I was like, oh, no, have I screwed up everything now? Like, is this going to just be a casual relationship forever? Or can I change it later on? So I don't know. Um, I may have just ruined everything with relationships. Also... I can't flirt with Vetra anymore, and so I'm worried I may have locked myself out of her romance too. Um, oh no! So <laughs> I feel like I've made a few mistakes here. That's, that's uh, unfortunate. I don't know if that's like that dialogue with with PB is like the signpost for okay, this is the like you can have a fling with her, or if there's an option to to like rekindle that romance later. I feel like I want to say there is, but I haven't really looked into it, so I don't know. Yeah, like, I, if this was, like, <laughs> if this was a well-written game, then surely there'll be another option later on to talk about it and, like, come back to it. But this game has not had a track record for me so far of being a really well-written game, so I don't actually know whether or not to trust that. Um, I was playing, like, I remember the lady on the bridge, is she a pilot? I don't know what she is. Uh, the... Irish, Scottish girl. Yes. The one the she has, like, really um, bright yellow hair. The re- yeah, the religious one. Um, you have a conversation with her, and you're and she, like, talks about how she's religious and she believes in God, and you have, like, two options, which basically boil down to, yes, I also believe in God, or no, religion is bad, and you should be bad. You should feel bad for believing in God. And I was like, why are these the only two options I have? Because I don't want to, like, like rain on her religious parade and be like, no. God isn't real. How do you believe in that? Or like, I don't want to say I'm religious as well because I'm, I'm not playing a religious writer. Um, and so I kind of had to just choose between those two options. And that kind of just felt like the epitome of the binariness of Mass Effect sometimes. Just that thing. And I was like, if this was Paragon and Renegade, which one would they make Paragon? And which one would they make Renegade? Because this is, this that's is a, questionable. That's a good question. Boy, um, that would be a statement. So yeah. what did you choose? <laughs> I ended up choosing 
the not believing in religion thing because I was really hopeful that the actual line would come out better than the option whoops written down there it did not it was it was not good um so I, I just haven't talked to her since oh, no. because I feel really embarrassed about it <laughs> she keeps me like writer I want to talk to you I'm like nope I'm not looking at you I don't see you there that's I mean sort of note to self like working on a game with large casts like this I think there is some merit to being able to do do-overs to like to be able to say like oh that's not really what I meant mm. and I think in some cases like with the romances there might be but there I don't believe there is for that conversation yeah. no I don't think so I don't know yeah like I said I've just been kind of avoiding that so yeah I can't say much about the writing of the game because it's been very basic a lot of the time um and the story itself like the main story is not hugely interesting or amazing or mind-blowing but yeah just the i like the squad that i have um and i like running around the planets a lot and driving around the planets a lot i yeah basically the parts i enjoy of it are what i really loved about mass effect one which was not so much the story it was everything else about the game um but i definitely see where the like non-love for it came from um it just very much fulfills that part of mass effect that i really wanted myself personally which i didn't realize i wanted that until i started playing this game and i was like oh yes i love this stuff um though i do have one huge complaint which is that there's one quest on haladin no i don't know the big the big desert planet that you get late game um that the krogan are on um yeah there's a quest that if you drive north and you keep driving north your car breaks down like your nomad breaks down and I assumed when I did it that because I was trying to get to like the big ass remnant ship in the background, um, I assumed that the thing was breaking down because there was like some field around the remnant ship or something. So I got out of my nomad and like the giant worm thing was like nearby and I was like, oh my god, is this like scripted? Is the giant worm gonna like drive up and like eat my nomad or something or like knock me down? And so I was running towards this remnant ship, like terrified of this giant worm without my nomad because it was broken. I got to the remnant ship. There was like nothing there except for a whole bunch of turrets. Oh, no. um, and I couldn't get past the locked bit because I didn't have the quest marker for that yet. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll just go to an orbital, like a drop point, and then it'll give me a new nomad. And so I went to there. I got the nomad back, and it was still broken. And I was hmm. like, hmm, this is this is bad. So I ran. This, this is a very, very big map. And because it's a desert, you have your life support that runs out. And so you die if you spend too long in the desert. And so I had to run. Um, I was running from the remnant ship down to the city to see if, like, I could fix my car there or something. And so it took me, like, I don't know, like half an hour to do that without dying. Because I had to stop between areas that had safe points. Got there. Nothing was there to fix it. Was like, this is... This, this seemed cool and, like, scripted and, like, it was really, like, it had this kind of cool dramaticness to um running through the desert trying not to die with your car broken in the background. Like, that was really cool and I like that. And I thought it was scripted and on purpose. <laughs> and then <laughs> I, um, I got, like, I got to the orbital or the drop point right near my um ship. And I actually was like, you know what? This feels like it might be a bug. So I Googled it. And it turns out that there is a quest. If you keep driving north after your car breaks down or after it starts breaking down, you hit a quest marker where somebody has sabotaged your car and you need to either kill them or threaten them or work with them to get parts of your car to fix it. But the problem is the game did not give me that quest marker when my car started to break down. 
So I didn't know it existed at all. And I would not have figured this out if the like if I hadn't Googled this and actually found someone to tell me, because there was no way for me to know why the car was breaking down. Like I wasn't even driving north at the point that it started happening. I was driving to the west to get to the ship. So I wasn't even heading in the right direction <laughs> to get so to that quest strange. point. Like you just nope yeah, out of the Like quest. the moment your car starts to break down, yeah, the the moment the car starts to break down, they should trigger the quest event. Like they should trigger the comm message you get and the the NAF point for it. Because so many other people got this and just thought it was a bug or just thought it was part of the story that your nomad breaks down there and you just don't have oh, a nomad no. for the rest of the game which is the worst because those are some really big yeah, maps rider limping um, through the desert so that's Krogan settlements going I need water <laughs> that's that's pretty much exactly what was happening so and like I would have loved it I loved it at first when I thought it was scripted and I thought it was like a really cool like little mini bit where you had to like desperately run through the desert without any support i thought that was really cool and then it kept happening and then i realized it was just a really badly designed quest and i was like "Mm, i'm not so happy with this anymore so uh the reason i've been playing destiny 2 recently is because i got really mad about being stuck in the middle of desert and having to run for like half an hour to get to this place i needed to go i died like three times trying to find the exact place i needed because all i knew was it was north somewhere um i almost got killed by the giant worm which was very exciting worm is pretty cool uh so my I love it. The reason this happened was because I wanted to go find the worm. Like, oh, I was like, I'm going to go worm. find the worm. So I drove north. So it's all the worm's fault. Or it's my fault for getting excited about this I blame worm. the worm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. the lesson here is that so, yeah, that's my if you're biggest going to make quests complaint. that, like, do unexpected things in the desert, make sure your player can run away mm. and, like, restock at a decent amount of distance instead of half an hour away. <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind of like, I would have been a-okay with this as a quest if, yeah, they'd given me, like, the quest marker for it from, like, the problem is, I think, that yeah, the scripting of the vehicle breaking down and the point where you actually, like, I think you have to hit a certain point in the desert for, to get the, the right conversation dialogue and the marker for it, and those don't happen simultaneously, which is the big problem. Um, so the car breaks down before you hit that other point. And so if you turn around or go a different direction, you just miss the quest completely. Which is, if you're going to take somebody's vehicle away from them, yeah. make it clear why. It's my big my big thing to Mass Effect. Please never do this to me again, because this was the worst. Yeah. Yeah, otherwise I love it. <laughs> otherwise I'm having great fun. But this was just a very big um, uh, dark spot, I don't know, on this game. Yeah. A big, a big sunspot. That's not the right phrasing, but you know what I mean. Sunspot in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise, I am quite in love with it. And I think I've spent like 40 hours on it, and I'm 44% of the way through. And I assume that 44% is like in terms of the entire T of the game, like everything in the game. Um, And I don't know if I'm going to hit 100%. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to hit 100% because there's some quests that I just don't want to do because morally they stress me out too much. there's one on Eos, which is like the first planet, where you can choose to either place these tectonic charges to give water to the main colony, or there's like another like outcast colony that lives off that water and is like, um, you could place these charges here to extract oil that we can trade with the colony for like so they can have water and stuff like that. And I was like and then someone pointed out, I think it was PB, was like, oh, but that's really bad for the environment and that's going to cause issues in the future for this for this planet ecologically. And I was just like, 
okay, this is stressful and I'm not going to do this. So I just ran away and didn't ever do the quest. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of in character, though, especially for early Ryder, who's yeah. like, who's just like a person thrown into this entire situation asked to do logistics things. Yep. And I was like, do I go for the good of the nexus in the colony or do I help these other people who have no support? But then they'll ruin the planet by doing that. And then I just start kind of internally screaming and just left the planet. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. So I may just forever be at ninety nine percent of the game. That quest. Okay, so let's go on yeah. to our main topic. We're uh, just to introduce this really quick. The Bone Universe is a trilogy starting with. Um, oh gosh, uh, Updraft <laughs> is the first book, <laughs> and by Fran Wild. Um, it's Updraft, Cloudbound, and Horizon, and I've. Really loved them for as basically uh, since they came out. I had sort of a I read the first one, thought it was good, set it aside, and then was like couldn't stop thinking about it. So I picked it up again and then just like became an <laughs> obsession. So I was really excited when the the third one came out this summer. Um, Saf, I'm glad you've like decided to like pick them up with me. They are about um, people living on towers made of living bone and they fly with like hang glider wings between them and it's about kind of the ruling group, the the singer's council being uh, hiding information from the people and Kirit is the sort of YA hero, right? The young girl with the superpower who goes in and figures out what the secret is and kind of deals with this corrupt group. So that's the first mm. book anyway. And Saf, do you want to talk about like, because you read them all in relatively quick succession too. Do you want to talk about like what drew you to them in general? Yeah. So I guess the reason I read these books was because you just talked very highly about them. And normally I probably wouldn't have picked them up because they're kind of more fantasy-ish than I would read. Like they're not fantasy particularly but they are more in the realm of like weird fantasy i guess um and i don't they feel more like fantasy yeah. than science fiction even though it's all very science yeah it's I kind think. of in the same realm as like the broken earth trilogy where it's like science based but still fantasy mostly um because it deals with nature it's all bi biology not it not yeah. technology right it's engineering but you know and and ecology not yeah technology. exactly and just because it wasn't like straight up sci-fi from the start i was like mm, i don't know so i probably wouldn't have picked it up without your recommendation but i remember in like the first chapter of updraft there was some weird sentence about like the warm bone or something and i was like oh that's weird i love it and from that moment on i was sold it was the moment where i realized just how weird the world was that kind of got me um it's really unique and really different and it's still really believable. Like, the idea of these people living on these massive towers of living bone that's just growing above the clouds. And there's, like, no explanation in the first book of, like, why there's bone or why it's growing or why they live there. Uh, it's just the thing that they all take for granted. And it's written in such a way that you just take it for granted, too. You're just not like, I don't know why there's bones. I don't know why they're that big. But it makes sense in this story. <laughs> uh, and I really appreciate how it's written because it is so weird. But... It's not so weird that you're just, like, constantly drawn out of it or questioning it. It just makes sense, even though it's weird. 
Yeah, part of what drew me to it the second time when I read Updraft the second time was just how visually distinct the city mm-hmm. was and how you really felt like you could live in that city and like you knew what it would be like. She goes into a lot of detail about the kind of food that's available to them, the kind of like engineering that goes into they, they have to build bridges between different bone towers because the towers aren't naturally connected. So people have to like sort of tend the bone in order to get it to grow in certain ways. And it all felt very, the world building was just thought through so well. And it's, it's a little strange to me to compare it to the broken earth, even though I do, I do feel they're very connected in that, like mostly because they're both very important to me, but the writing style is hmm. very different. And I think the, the, like, Broken Earth is not a YA series in any way. Uh, Bone Universe can, is kind of, like, straddles the line between YA and adult. Mm. But they do both, I think they both do exactly what you said, which is that you take the world for granted. You um, become very quickly acclimated to this very strange fantasy world. And then the author goes, wait a second, isn't this world strange? <laughs> and you're like, yeah. I guess it is. And they're like, let me explain that to you. And then you're just along for the ride with the explanation of the thing that you didn't even ask for an explanation for, but now you're getting one and it's a really yeah, good one. Yeah, you start getting one and you're like, I, I did want to know this. I just didn't realize I wanted to know it. <laughs> like, when I was yes, reading the first book, yes, I, I never like I never asked, why are there bone towers? Where did they come from? I was like, yeah, there are bone towers. That just makes sense. That's the world. Um, <laughs> That's just an acceptable part of the the pact you're in with yeah, the author. Yeah, exactly. I never actually expected to get an answer for it or to like have to ask the question about it at any point. Um, which now that I think about it, I'm like, why didn't I ask that question? Like, it, why would there be bone towers? But yeah, the world just doesn't make you question it. You're just like, yeah, sure. This seems like a thing. This seems like a real thing. Yep, and I haven't really analyzed like how the writing, how the prose does that, but it, it does it so well. Yeah, I think it being, because um, it's first person, the first book at least, is from Carrot's point of view. And I think because she's just like, she's got a very focused mind. Like she's got her goals and she's got what she wants and she's got her life. And you instantly get very dragged into her ambitions and what she's trying to do and what she's like failing to do and what she's like, succeeding at. Um, and she's just, she accepts the world because it is from first person. You just kind of get her acceptance of how things are. Um, and I think she brings up so many that's, other questions. Like there's the sky mouths, like right at the start. You're like, what are these giant mouths in the sky? And like, who are these singers? And why is her screaming doing something? So it just throws other more pressing questions at you as well that make you accept the world as it is. That's an interesting point about Kira, too, because I definitely, part of what I like so much about this series is that I really identify with Mm -hmm. her, and I feel like a lot of the actions that she took were actions that, like, I feel like I would do that, too. Everything from when she goes along with authority to when she eventually rebels against authority, her, like, her ambitions, her uh, intensity made a lot of sense to me, and I really liked that about her. She also, she's just very, she's fierce in a way that's not, um, doesn't seem she's not like super heroic but she just seems like a very she takes things very seriously and she feels things very hard and i like that about her 
And then in the second book, Nat comes in, and I think Nat is an essential narrator because he does have a wider scope than Kirit. He's not just thinking about the thing that's directly in front of him. He's thinking about a lot of political stuff and the wider view. But I was relieved kind of when Kirit's perspective came back because I, I generally liked her voice better. Yeah, I'm the same. I totally – you told me at some point, like, before I really knew what these books were, when you read Cloudbound, I think, for the first time, possibly, and you mentioned that it had different narrator and you're kind of like not as happy with that and i totally forgot about that and then i started reading it and i was like oh yeah that's right i knew this was gonna happen but i just totally didn't think about it and yeah i definitely missed having carrot's voice like i understand nat's point of view and like yeah he does bring quite a lot more into the story um because yeah he's a lot more forward thinking um and also more involved with actual people's lives as opposed to Carrot just kind of doing her own thing a lot of the time. But yeah, I definitely prefer Carrot because <laughs> I identify with her a lot more and she just she just doesn't take no for an answer. Whereas Nat will be like, oh, okay. Okay, sure. I'll find another way to do this. But Carrot's like, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to do this thing right now. Um, and I really love that about her. So I was really glad to get her point of view back as well. It's interesting that you kind of say put her as distinct from people because I think part of what she does is she she identifies with the singers, not so much with the the civilians, right? The townspeople, for lack of a better word. She she kind of identifies with this group of they remind me a lot of Jedi, right? They have their own powers, they have their own ivory tower, and after the ivory tower falls, she still feels like they're her people more than like Nat and his. Uh, constituents are her mm. people and I thought that was really interesting because it wasn't she never presented her Nat was the people person Kira was yeah. not yeah and it's kind of like she tries to not be that person like she does try to I didn't like relate to the townspeople and to be more of like someone who can work with both sides but nobody else will let her do that as well so she kind of gets shoehorned into this role that isn't entirely what she wants, but she kind of just has to shoulder it anyways. Like, a lot of these books is Kirit being given, like, a title or a role by someone else and just having to shoulder that burden as much as she doesn't want to, because she knows that she has to a lot of the time. Yeah, and she doesn't run from it. She kind of leans into it, but there's also that, like, she doesn't want other people to speak for her, and a lot of what the titles are are just a way for other people to speak for her. Yeah. Yeah, I really, Kirit's a really good character. She's so complex, and but everything she does, even if it's like a contradiction of an earlier thing, just makes so much sense for her. Like, I always loved her. Even when she was like doing something really stupid, I still loved her because I totally <laughs> understood why she was doing this really stupid thing, because it made sense. It was the only reasonable thing that she could do at that time. I think both characters tie really well into some of the themes of this book, which includes like how you control information in a society hmm. and what is secret, what should be secret, what should be publicly available, as well as uh, the law and like who controls the law. There's a lot of, um, I think there's a couple interviews on Tor.com with the author where she talks specifically about how laws in this world are actually symbols written on bone chips. And if you break a law, you get a chip tied to your your wings so you can't fly you're too heavy you're like weighted down by the rule that you've broken and that's such like so symbolic and there's also a lot of ways they play with with that in the book with like who makes the laws and who controls information there's a part where like 
people start sending out messenger birds specifically to kill other messenger birds so that the information doesn't get around. There's a lot of like, okay, who's in charge and how are they using these laws? And I thought those things tied together really well with both Kirit and with Nat, who goes through his own change and kind of learns which politicians he can trust, which he can't, and and which are also going to change over the course of this. The uh, part, of the other thing I like about the series a lot is that to me it was very much like a metaphor for climate change because their city is changing. They're the you know, in a, a lot of people are going to have to like flee the area, and that was very like I thought that was very timely. And the way people react to that um, was something that I think is a little actually like uh, underappreciated in this series is how. Fran Wilde writes the reaction people have to that kind of change. Yeah, I think something... Yeah, you're totally right. I totally got the climate change, like, uh, feeling as well. Like, I don't know how intentional that was, but it absolutely is there. Uh, One of the things I really love about the series is that it's very changeable. The state of the world, you can't ever trust it to remain the same. Like, this becomes clear quite early on. The first book, like straight away things that you expect to happen won't happen and things will change completely and like characters might die or a thing might change like irrevocably um and so like through the second and third book (laughs) i would get really stressed out because i couldn't trust people to like stay alive or for things to Mm -hmm. stay in a safe and comfortable place um which is just very it's very well done because it's just constantly changing and evolving and your understanding of the world and the characters themselves are constantly changing and evolving with them um and yeah like these people like they have to flee at some point and the the reactions they have to that are very real and the way that like in a normal kind of hero's journey kind of story like you'd expect this character to come back and like be the hero and save everyone and like they'd all trust this person inherently because they're the hero of the story which is not at all what happens here like Kirit is the hero but because of everything she's done, everything she's gone through, she can't be seen as a hero by everybody, which is so stressful as the reader, knowing that she's doing the right thing, but not, but knowing that there's a reason people don't believe her as the hero straight away. Um, and I really love the way that's done because it just adds this whole extra layer of, I guess, realism and humanity to the books. And just also, like, in real life, life changes irrevocably all the time. Like, you make... You move somewhere, you start a new job, someone you know passes away or gets married or moves elsewhere as well, and, like, these big changes affect you. And in a lot of books, like, things don't change all that much. The status quo kind of keeps the same, even though there are big events. Whereas in these books, the status quo just never stays the same. It's always changing. Yeah, and I think one of the things that do that is consistent is some of the the human relationships, right? You have a lot of family relationships in this story. I have so many feelings about the parallel between Kirit and her mother and Nat and his father, who was a big part of the, like, previous generation. And I basically, like, wrote, I was I was going to write, like, a whole family tree in our notes for this <laughs> podcast, and I just, I stopped it eventually. <laughs> but there's a lot of... Uh, parent-child relationships, a lot of, um, like, Kira and Nat are, they're not blood siblings, they're not related, they were essentially raised together, so they have a very sibling relationship. This, the thing that surprised me a lot about this book is that there are, the series, is that there are, um, a couple romantic relationships, but the, the <laughs> way they're written is very, like, understated, and mm. it's, it basically gives, it gives the characters a lot of privacy. You might not know that characters are in a relationship until, like, 
well, book three, right? So, but they've been in their relationship the whole time, maybe. And that was, I've never read anything like that before. I've, it just seemed very, like, I kind of didn't know how to react to it as a reader. So I'm used to, like, I'm used to either facing, okay, these two are obviously going to get together because that's how this story goes, or... I'm going to, like, ship this relationship, but it's not obviously, it's obviously not actually going to happen in the book. Whereas this was, like, it, it kind of happened, but it happened and no one commented on it. Because that's, like, for the characters. It wasn't for the reader. And I just, I don't know, what do you think about about that? I loved how that was done. Because I have never been a huge romance reader, and I always get kind of frustrated, especially in young adult stuff, because... I understand that relationships and like romance is a huge part of becoming an adult, but also I hate it. Um, <laughs> so it was cool reading a book that was like kind of young adulty. Like you're right, it does straddle the line between young adult and adult. Um, but yeah, it's really understated. Like there are some relationships that I was like, I think this is a relationship, but I'm not sure. And then in the third book, I was like, okay, there we go. There's the confirmation of this. Um, I love how it's written because it feels very normal like very real like you kind of get these like short moments between characters where they're very close and in real life you'd see that between like your friends you're like yeah they're together they like each other um in this book you kind of get a similar feeling that you see these two characters having this one interaction just kind of they'll like bump shoulders or something as they're having a conversation and it's like this sweet little hint of like maybe they are in a relationship maybe they just like each other maybe they're just really good friends but on the other hand it really emphasizes family relationships, like with Nat and Carrot. It could have very easily, I was worried in the first book that it was going to be a romance thing. And the second book made me realize that absolutely not. And I was very happy about that because having such a strong relationship between a woman and a man in a series that isn't romantic is quite rare, but really, really cool because I mean, my best friend is also a dude. So like it happens, obviously. Um, and because they've got these kind of, like, they already have their own lives outside of the, their relationships with each other. They're not a romantic thing that is, like, the sole focus of the story or anything. They have, in a way, a lot more complex of relationship between the books. Because because they act as siblings more than partners, like, romantic partners, they can have a lot more tension and still come back to each other and still be close which I really, really liked. Like, there would be moments where you know, like, they, they are fighting and they hate each other at that moment, but because it's not romantic, that's not going to end in, like, some <laughs> romantic, angry, like, breakup or anything. Like, you're like, they're siblings, so they may fight and they may hate each other, but at some point they're still not connected by blood, but by being wingmates from, like, such a young age. Yeah, and, and you can still have... Yeah, I really adore that. You can still have that tension of they have different philosophical bases for their ideas they have different political ideas and you're still like oh i want them to be friends like you're still rooting for that it's yeah. just not a romantic thing yeah i really i really loved that i really appreciate how this book wrote like really understated romantic relationships because it really just puts such a focus on all the other kinds of relationships by understating that like the family ones and the mostly the family ones um and the friendships and all of that it's just every relationship kind of has its own little nuance and I, yeah, I really love how the relationships are written in this, these books. It's probably one of the reasons I love these books so much. And at the same time, like, I was very charmed by the relationships in it. And I was like, yes. I feel like it's almost the best of both worlds where you know, you know that's happening. And like, if you're in a fandom and are going to ship it, like, that's happening there for you. But at the same time, it's not the focus of the story. It's not 
there's just enough to get your ideas going if you want to in like a fandom sense, right? Because I'm coming from like the fandom background, but it's not the the message isn't that the romantic relationship has to be part of this hero's journey. It's just something else that happens to be happening. Yeah, and even when when those like interactions do happen, you could tell how much love and care there is in them. Like even though they're understated. It never, like, understates the love between the characters, which I really love. And also it has polyamory in it, which I appreciate a lot. Yeah, which... It's just, it's so chill, it's just there. (laughs) Yeah, which, like, I didn't expect, but that's one of those ways that it kind of subverts what you expect it to do. Yeah, I think I messaged you when I was partway through the second book, and I was like, Megan, this is polyamorous, like, because it feels like it is. Both people that I've introduced this series to have messaged me, you and another friend, around the same time, going, hey, is this what I think it is? And yes, yes, it is. Yeah, it becomes a lot more obvious later on, but at first I was like, hang on, something's happening here. It's so good. I love it. I love it, especially because young adult so often is love triangles, but this one's just like, not even like, the love, the the polyamory isn't between like three of the main characters. It's like a main character and a couple side characters. And it's like, it's just there. It's just part of normal life. It's so nice. It's such a like, refutation of that idea. Like, oh, Kira and Nat are going to be a thing. No, like Nat's got his own thing going on. Definitely. Yeah, he's, he's already, he's already sorted. Like, he's fine. Yeah. Yes, right, I love it. So I, yeah, I I kind of like in order to talk more about some of that. I think we need to go into a spoiler section, and I do want to hear what you thought about Horizon. So we are going to talk about the last book in the series a bit. So if you don't want spoilers, or if you do want spoilers, <laughs> this is your decision time, right? So after you want to add anything else, it's like not spoilery. I think we've basically just heaped praise on this book. I can't even really think of yeah. any like criticisms to add, just as a balancing <laughs> point. Yeah, my only non-spoilery thought otherwise is that I love the little mouths, which are introduced in the second book. They're so cute. They're like little baby thingies that glow when people sing. They're very cute. Oh, they're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, spoiler section. Basically, I want to see the movie of Horizon immediately because mm-hmm. I want to see these like city-sized dinosaur monsters crashing into one another and there were so many times during this book when I was like one of those like actually like go woohoo out loud (laughs) and one of them was when the the city falls because I was just like this is so cool and it's like you were saying earlier with the author's not afraid to change the world like the it's utterly changed by the end yeah yeah, I I can't even comprehend the size of these cities. Like, I know that they're big, like, they have to be big, but I just can't, I can't capture it in my mind just how big these cities are. I would love to see a movie that actually shows the world, like, not just, like, I would love to see the, the spires and the towers and stuff, um, and even the cloud-bound part, like, the cloud parts of it, because that sounds really cool, but just the cities themselves, they must be, like, Real big dinosaur guys. Like, they must be massive. Yeah, and just, like, the the, it, the sound, you can practically hear it from the book. It was so good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, when they first, because when they first got to Horizon and they finally saw what the city was, and I was like, that makes 
so much sense, but I had never considered it. So what I thought, what my, like, fan theory was, was that the cities were built on something like Sarlacc, where it was, like, a creature buried underground, and it had it put up all these spires to, like, attract prey, and there'd be some kind of, like, pit in the middle of it, ah. where everything, like, fell and was digested, and that was going to be the, like, creepy reveal was the, like, mouth at the center of the city. Mm. That's not what happened, <laughs> but... No, yeah. that would have been really cool, though, but yeah, that's not what happened. Yeah. Uh, that would have been really cool. So, really, the... I just kind of wanted to hear what you thought about the book and wanted to, like, fangirl with you about some parts, because the other part <laughs> that I loved was when <laughs> Kirit straps propellers onto her wings... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because it's this whole thing about like you can't fly on the ground because there's not enough wind and she's just like well I have to figure it out I have to do it somehow so I'm gonna build propellers <laughs> that was just yeah. like Garrett spin your way to victory <laughs> like I loved it so much yeah. <laughs> I really because you're just like you can't you can't fly on the ground there's no way you can do it and she's just like I'm going to make it work, though. Like, I'm going to find a way. It just epitomizes how much Carrot will make her thing that she wants happen. No matter what, she will find a way to make it work. And I, when she first, like, flew with the propellers, just was the best thing. I was so happy about it. <laughs> and it was just, it was so inventive, both in-universe <laughs> and out. Because I'm just like, you, you got the wings part down, and there's no fear of heights. Like, these characters, I loved how it was written in that there's no... They're not afraid of falling at all because they've been they've yeah. been falling for you know most of their lives, and but the the challenge is to like is to just give it more power. And I was like, you just like invented the airplane here. Ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I didn't even think about yeah. that. <laughs> and then like the the epilogue, right, where you've got like small children on training airplanes <laughs> because that's what they're used to <laughs> yes. doing. Like it's so great. I. I love it because I could not, I couldn't picture how they were actually going to save everyone and find a new home for them. I was like, there's no, there's just nothing you can do here. It's just not going to work. And in the end, they made it work. Like they built their kite city and then the others are raising this baby city. And there's like, there's two ways they made it work. They have two new homes, basically. Um, and the idea of the kite city is just really cool aesthetically like i really want to see what that looks like because it sounds amazing and yeah like these kids are like <laughs> training plane wings basically just like flying around it's really cute and it's such like a cool evolution of like when you read the first book it's just this weird thing and the identifiable thing i guess is like hand glider wings basically and people whereas by the end of it like they're on the ground and you know that and so like the weird stuff is more not the world itself but like the way they're living in that world, it's like they're on kites because the ground is not where they live, even though they're on the ground now. Um, and then you've still got, yeah, the wings are still like the identifiable part because they're planes, pretty much. Yeah, and it's built, like, not to kind of make a pun on it, but the world's built from the ground up based on what they used to have, not <laughs> what their new environment is necessarily suited for, but they're going to do what they're used to doing and they're going to make it work. Yeah, it's his. A lot about people in general. I think she really captured, like, the spirit of humanity in these books really well, because that's just what humans do. They're just like, this is what I want, and even if the world's not built for it, I'm going to make it happen, because this is how we live. 
Yeah, and it was it was such an optimistic ending. I really liked it. And that kind of what we were talking about with um there was no love triangle, right? Instead it was like Nat's comfortably in his poly relationship and Kirit's paired up with her like mentor figure. And I was like, okay, like I'm here for this. <laughs> I really from the first book, I was like, I really want her and Wick to end up together, but this feels like it's not gonna happen. And then the second book I kinda they start getting closer and I was like yes it's gonna happen and the third book she's like of course we've kissed and blah 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 and i was like why didn't you tell me this sooner yeah so what like when carrot please explain yeah. it's like yeah. it's basically like, yeah this like throwaway like of course we've kissed like in her thought process like she's not even saying to someone she's just thinking it herself and i was like when why didn't you tell us why is this not i guess because we weren't in her mind in the last book so it makes sense but i just like I was so happy when that moment happened because I really want those two. They're just such, like, they're both such determined people who've both been through so much. And you could tell they were close just because of, like, their singer things, but also still having the connection to the towers, like, through their families because Wick had McCall. Um, and Mackle, I don't know how to say his name. <laughs> yeah. And um, so they have a lot in common, and just having each other for support was just – I really appreciate the relationship. Whether they'd ended up as friends or as partners like they did, I would have been happy both ways, but I was just really happy when they ended up together and like had a cute little kid and she's just like and the kid is just like Kira it was with her mom being like, I wanna fly and do exactly what you do it was just such a cute way to bring it back to um Kira's relationship with her mother without like making it really sad about her mom. Yeah. And even there, it's so understated because they basically, the, mm. the author basically points out that, like, the kid, like, has some of Wick's facial features, right? But she never even comes out right out and says that's their kid. It's all left to, you understand it, but it's not said straight out. Yeah. But, Which but, I love. Yeah. I love it when authors trust their words and their worlds and their characters well enough that they don't have to spell everything out for you. And yet it is obvious, like, the story that, like, yeah, you know that Wick and Carrot fall for each other and that they have a kid at the end. Like, it's, it's very clear. But, yeah, it, like you said, it's never spelled out. They just never write out, say, like, yeah, they got married and banged and had a kid. It's just assumed in the way the story is told, which I love. I appreciate that a lot. I'm so glad that you it's like them, too, beautiful. because I was, like – low-key shipping it in the first book but <laughs> figured it wouldn't happen because he is kind of portrayed as like the older older mentor figure and he's not i, I don't know how old he is he's not that i don't much think he's that much older, older than, than her. her yeah but he's definitely more of like an authority figure and they have that kind of almost combative relationship in the first book and i was kind of like i don't know if she's gonna go for this but then you can yeah. see that developing cloudbound so much and by the time Horizon comes around, Curate, they're, they're very equal, and they're very, they're obviously, like, they care for each other a lot, and I love them. Mm, I really love how that relationship grew, because, yeah, agreed. I also Loki shipped them, and I was like, no, this, this won't happen, and then it did. So, uh, yeah, there's just so many good things about these books that just, I love, and I'm probably going to reread them, um, like, by the actual books themselves, because I don't own them, I got them out from the library, and then reread them again, because... Very good, very good books. I mean to reread Horizon one of these days. I've, I've only read it once and then, like, haven't sat down to do it uh, again. So, one of these days. Yeah, the highest praise I can give it is that at the end of Horizon I cried a little bit. Yeah, uh, I have so many feelings. <laughs> I'm so glad you have these feelings, too. 
<laughs> yes, me too. I'm really glad as well. I, I'm really glad I actually decided to read these books because, yeah, I just thought they were kind of weird sounding before I actually picked it up. They and are. then, You're yeah, like wrong. I said, in the first chapter, I was sold on the weirdness of it and I was sold on Carrot. Like, instantly. I haven't had a first chapter of a book pull me in that quickly in a long time. Um, and I just, from that point, I just knew that I would love these books. Cool. Well, I hope that this gets more people to read them because there's no fandom to speak of and I just like want more people to appreciate them. So uh, I hope that this uh, episode was enjoyable, that we just gushed about these books this whole time. (laughs) I think it balances out my hatred for some of the books in the last few episodes. (laughs) All right. um, So I think that's it for our episode this month. We are... A Tashi Station podcast. We can be found on Twitter at Western underscore reaches. I can be found on Twitter at blog full of words. Um, I write for Den of Geek, StarWars.com, Star Wars Insider, and a couple other things here and there. We're also together on Blaster Cannon, which is a Den of Geek podcast about Star Wars books. Saf, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Wanderlustin, W-A-N-D-E-R-L-U-S-T-I-N. You can also find me at NotSafWork.com, where my own podcast network is. Um, And I also write for Toshi Station sometimes. I say that, I haven't written for them in a while, but it does happen sometimes.